Due to the sheer wealth of clips and historical goodies, this episode has become a two-parter. This, as tradition dictates, is part one. Next time, will be part two. Because that's how maths works. Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. In May 1922, Britain has three plucky radio stations, Marconi's 2MT Rittle, Marconi's 2LO London, and Metropolitan Vickers 2ZY Manchester. But with more wireless companies chomping at the bit, it's all got a bit much and a bit American. Something must be done before we all start eating sloppy joes with tomato fries and dropping the U in colour. This time, the big six companies meet while their broadcasters give us a summer of music. And this is the episode where the BBC gets its name. Yes, by the end of this episode, there will be the British Broadcasting Companies. Plural. Yes, two of them. That's awkward. Also awkward is that that name does sound two-thirds like the title of this podcast. But I must stress, for legal reasons, that the British Broadcasting Corporation that grew out of the British Broadcasting Company, that grew out of the idea of two British Broadcasting Companies, of which more this episode, is all unaffiliated with this podcast, The British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London Calling. Ah, hello, hello. Thank you for joining. Thank you for sticking around after our brief summer interval. It's the summer holidays, and I'm the only person here researching, writing, producing, presenting, editing, and promoting this podcast. And we've been away, or we're going away. I can't keep track. All I know is that we're not going away overseas due to everything. So we're holidaying in Britain. Yes, you remember Britain. It's where we used to holiday before the start of civil aviation back in the early 20s. And speaking of that era, we've got another five episodes or so to bring us to the end of this series, which will be basically the launch of the BBC. But this will only be season one, mind you, once we've given birth to the BBC, so to speak, ignore that image, after a break for a few months while I go and research, write and maybe even do some paid work, who knows, I will return with season two and that will cover the BBC's first year of 1923. And hey, if you fancy turning this podcast into paid work of a sort rather than, you know, costs me to host it, feel free. Patreon.com or coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, both have links in the show notes if you fancy helping us out. A huge thank you to those who have, those who do, and those who will do, which could be you. Equally, of course, if you can't just now, I know that times are tight, but if you can, great, and that will help fund those who can't. Before we dive into the summer of 1922 and ponder how you go from three radio stations to two British broadcasting companies to just one British broadcasting company, let's first spread the love a little. Here's a listener who's been tweeting us, Eddie Bowen from the brilliant Irish Pirate Radio History. Eddie says, just catching up on your excellent podcasts, great early history, brilliantly told. Oh, thanks, Eddie. Did you know that Ireland became the first nation in the world to be declared by radio? during the 1916 Easter Rising. The rebel station was also the first pirate station in the world. And you can catch all the details in Eddie's book. It's called Rebel Radio, Ireland's first international radio station, 1916. It looks amazing. It includes the tale of the world's first radio station yet to announce a nation into being. That is quite something, isn't it? The Irish Republic declared by radio. Maybe this could be the first podcast to announce a nation into being. If you're thinking of setting a country up, do get in touch. Give us the scoop. Maybe we can 
announce it here. Eddie's book, Rebel Radio, is available on his website. We'll put the link in the show notes. And you can find him on Twitter at IB Hall of Fame. There are loads of things there on Irish Broadcasting's backstory. Last bit of news before we embark on the history stuff. You can hear me on the actual BBC, the corporation, you know, the proper one. I'm guest hosting Sunday Breakfast on BBC Radio's Sussex and Surrey, August 23rd and 30th, 2020, if you're in time. And I'm also back on Pause for Thought on Radio 2. It'll be through the night on this one. It'll be 2.45am, clips online afterwards, weekly uh, from August the 31st. Do find me on your radios. But meanwhile, back on the podcast, now our story this week will cover the summer of 1922, from the start of May that year to the end of July. And two things will happen in that period. There'll be some business people talking around tables and there'll be some broadcasting people making singing happen in studios. This is a bit of broadcasting story that's often glossed over in books and on websites. It can be a little dry, you see, but our job here is to make the indigestible palatable. It's a catchy slogan. I'm working on it. I'm going to tell this week then via two alternating stories taking place over this same timeline of those couple of months. We've got the top level meetings between all the vested interests at managerial level. And we've got the broadcasters broadcasting music, really, almost for the first time. So we will tell both tales in the next half hour or so. When the business meetings get a bit heavy, we'll cut to the songs. And when the songs feel a bit light, we'll go back to the boardroom. Last episode, we looked at the radio station 2ZY Manchester. That was rushed out by Metropolitan Vickers, the wireless manufacturing company, as they could see Marconi's dominating the market. We in the north felt ourselves in competition with Marconi in the south. And they could also see the Postmaster General was plotting radio's legal future. So why were these wireless manufacturers even wanting to broadcast them? They make radio sets, surely. Well, yes, but wouldn't it be nice if there was something to listen to on these radio sets rather than just Eckersley's 2MT Rittle and Burroughs 2LO in London, both the product of Marconi's, of course. So you could say these new radio stations came about to sell their own radio sets. So yes, the BBC actually then starts, arguably, as commercial radio. It has something to sell. Radios. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I do like to reference or pastiche sort of familiar TV or radio programmes or tropes. So this episode, to sweeten the pill, I'm going to add a little sugar. Alan Sugar, in fact. So this week, to show the boardroom and the broadcasting studio, it's The Apprentice meets Top of the Pops. Now, I needed to find copyright-free versions of each, and I couldn't, so the best I could do is to play it myself on the Bon Tempe keyboard. So first, let's start with some popular music of the day. Yeah, that was meant to sound a bit like the Top of the Pops theme, you know, a bit. So, music fans, you have come to the right place, and that place is 2MT Rittle in Essex, that sleepy village with that wild DJ, Britain's first, Peter Eckersley. See earlier episodes for details. Marconi publicity boss Arthur Burroughs is trying to keep reckless Eckersley in check. So Burroughs keeps sending live singers to up the culture factor of what's coming from Eckersley's hut. So here's our first hit of the week, a singer of note, Loritz Melchior, the renowned tenor who you may recall sang soon after Dame Nellie Melba back in episode four in 1920. Now, I didn't expect you to actually remember. So let's have Eckersley himself reflecting a few decades later. We weren't an, uh, simply and only interested in um, broadcasting this frivolous stuff that you might think that we did. We had serious artists. For instance, we had Melchior. 
Well, Melchior had just been married, apparently, and he'd left his wife comforted by a crystal set in Denmark, and he believed that the louder he uh, sang, the more likely his wife was to hear him. So, when the opening bars were played, he sucked in his breath, which pulled the windows shut, and he gave a bellow that shut the station down. I remember afterwards, he used to wander about the place and say, um, What's that bust component there? Oh, well, of course, that's part of the Melchior breakdown. I got that thing burst into flame. On May 2nd, 1922, Melchior sings On With The Motley from Pagliacci. And this one, Ujarak Song from Kadara by Boronson. Yeah, I'm sure you knew that. Melchior also sang The Blind Ploughman that day and Sometimes In My Dreams by Guy de Hardelot. Yeah, that sounds like a character from a carry-on film. But all of these songs, that famous tenor blasts rather loud because crooning is an art form yet to be invented. Invented for radio, really, but for now the brash, big voice singing is all that the entertainment world knows. Singing for microphones for one listener with whispered sincerity. That's yet to come. More Bing Crosby than Al Jolson. And Rittle wasn't the only time that that singer blasted. A year later on the fledgling BBC, Melchior would be so loud they actually put the microphone in the corridor and made him sing from the studio through an open door. But how do we get to that fledgling BBC then? Well, the second week of May 1922 is one of the most influential in all of British broadcasting. So influential that, in fact, we've spent the last three episodes pretty much in that one week. So to summarise the last couple of episodes, on May the 11th, Marconi's 2LO starts calling, and then five days later, 2ZY Manchester starts replying to that call, launched by rival company Metropolitan Vickers. Yes, business rivals. And that means, of course, we are switching to the boardroom. Thank you to my children's Bon Tempe keyboard for helping create these musical masterworks. The government states at this point that whatever the future for radio, it is restricted to wireless manufacturers only to run it. So that's a final nail in the coffin for, for example, the Daily Mail. They've been hoping for years to broadcast their own Daily Mail radio station ever since that Melbourne concert back in 1920. But it's not to be. Maybe after Times Radio, Mail Radio might kick in. I don't want to give them ideas. But even limited to the wireless manufacturers, is that still too many cooks? Well, two days after 2ZY launches, May the 18th, the end of that mega week for radio, there's a big meeting. The Postmaster General, he assembles a gathering of wireless manufacturers, of interested parties who want to be part of this radio thing. A couple of dozen companies are represented, all striding in with power walks and wheelie suitcases, I imagine, like the opening of The Apprentice. Yes, I know it's tenuous, but go with it. But the Postmaster General, he wants one single consortium to run this thing. Can they work together as a team? Here's the voice of John Reith. The post office had by then received many applications for broadcasting licenses from firms and had invited the more substantial applicants to a meeting at St Martin's Le Grand. That's the voice of John Reith there, but he's not in this story yet. At the time we're talking about, he's not involved in broadcasting for another three or four months, another three or four episodes in our case here. At this point of our story, Reith has just left a factory management job in Scotland and he's come to London looking for work, thinking of getting into politics. He doesn't even own a radio at this point. 
But that's him looking back on this moment of the BBC's birth. The British Broadcasting Consortium, when several companies joined together to sort broadcasting out. Here it was suggested by the secretary of the post office, Sir Evan Murray, that they should get together and evolve some cooperative method of running and managing broadcasting. So on May the 18th, in the boardroom, 28 people are present. There are 23 from interested wireless companies. Uh, the big voices here are Godfrey Isaacs from Marconi's, uh, Frank Gill, he heads up Western Electric, Arthur Fleming, he does similar at Metropolitan Vickers. And there are five representing the post office. One of them, Mr F.J. Brown, is a radio-interested executive at the Postmaster General's office. Now, he's the guy who went to America to see the American boom in action. He's been on fact-finding trips to see how they do it, and he knows that advertising is not the way to go. And fewer stations would be nice as well. Avoid the radio noise. 1922's radio broadcast magazine described American entertainment broadcasts as follows. Concerts are seasoned here and there with a dash of advertising paprika. Yes, describing adverts as a nice little spice while actually trying to work out how radio pays for itself. In fact, 30 years earlier, back in 1894, there was even a suggestion that advertising could appear on actual records. One promotional statement from the US ad industry read, Nobody will refuse to listen to a fine song or concert piece if it's interrupted by a modest remark. Tartar's baking powder is best. Thankfully, commercial interruptions on gramophone records did not catch on. Still, the American advertising issue is such a biggie that in 1923, when the BBC was all well and set up and they opened new buildings at Savoy Hill, the BBC chairman, Lord Gainford, actually used his address to have a dig at the American addiction to advertising. Here's that clip. Last year, the manufacturers of wireless apparatus met together by invitation of the post office as it was realised that broadcasting would have to be controlled by one broadcasting authority if the chaos which today is so obvious in America were to be avoided here. I want you to understand that in addition to trying to protect our 600 manufacturing members, we have never lost sight of the interests of the general public. So anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back in May the 18th at that meeting, Sir Evelyn Murray, Secretary of the Post Office, he's running the show. He's like our Lord Sugar, I suppose. He pops up now and then just to say who's hired, but really he's going to let the wireless manufacturers get on with the task at hand. So Sir Evelyn Murray addresses the meeting and simply says, this ain't America, work together or not at all. You're fired with enthusiasm. Now, none of the 23 wireless manufacturers queries the no advertising rule. They all accept that as a given. Some of them query at this meeting the no news rule that the Postmaster General's office wants to impose. You know, they don't want to annoy the newspapers. But the wireless groups would quite like to broadcast a bit of news. A lot of them also debate the whole monopoly versus competition dilemma. You know, if you avoid the American free-for-all by having, say, one broadcaster, then that's probably going to be Marconi's, because they are streets ahead. Marconi's own pretty much all the radio patents, 152 for Radio Kit alone, and they've got no plans to share them. You cannot build a transmitter without Marconi's. And yet the Postmaster General won't allow Marconi's to have all the licences. We can't have a monopoly, but we can't have America. So how do you have one company but include everybody else? Well, Sir Evelyn Murray says, at the end of this process, one of you will get a licence. Or maybe two of you. Well, one or two groups working together. The Postmaster General has said he will tolerate 
one or two broadcasting networks, but he would really quite like just one. But yeah, for a while, there is a chance of two British broadcasting companies, perhaps a Marconi network in the south and the Metropolitan Vickers network in the north, with other wireless companies picking a side. Well, Sir Evelyn Murray from the post office, he answers no questions at the meeting. He just says, get on with it then. And he strides out like Alan Sugar. Go on, I'll see you back in the boardroom in a few days. Or weeks. Or months. Meanwhile, over in music, the same day as that meeting, there's a singer called Nora Scott, and she's performing at 2MT Rittle, which is still broadcasting 15 minutes of telegraphy at the start of every broadcast. Those dots and dashes persist, at least until that week that Nora sings. May the 18th will be the last of the dots and the dashes. Nora Scott is singing songs like When the Dream is There by everyone's favourite carry-on character, Guy De Hardalot. She sings I Will Not Doubt by Sir Frederick Cowan, I Found a Paradise by Dorothy Foster. These are all songs on the playlist of May the 18th, and that is the last Riddle show to have Morse code. They're embracing a new audience. From now on, Riddle will also start their weekly show on Tuesdays at 8 rather than at 7 to allow for more listeners who are having their tea. And the wavelength switches next show as well to stop clashing with other signals. And that's right, with no more dots and dashes, the broadcasters are showing no remorse. Remorse. Oh, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, off. You can work that one out for yourself. Five days later, May 23rd, the manufacturers assemble. They've picked a location and a chairman, both as neutral as can be. Marconi's offer to host, but no, they meet on less partisan ground. The Institute of Electrical Engineers. It's a building a few doors down from Tuolo on the Strand. And that building will one day become the mighty BBC Savoy Hill studio. So this building matters. The chairman, too, is pretty neutral. It's Frank Gill. He's voted in by the others, like a team leader on The Apprentice, yes. He's the chief engineer of Western Electric, and he's pretty influential in this whole process. The day before this big meeting, Mr Gill writes a note of talking points. What do we call this broadcasting company? And then he poses the question of radio stations not in this scheme, like 2MT Riddle, which, you know, though it's Marconi's, it's out on a limb. Must they close under this agreement? And the meeting itself of 23 wireless manufacturers, they actually decide that it's best if just the big six meet together. Marconi, General Electric, Metropolitan Vickers, Radio Communication, Western Electric and British Thompson Houston. A smaller committee to consider and prepare a scheme for submission to the general meeting. So those big six, you've got Marconi's, who, as we know, have 2LO and 2MT. We've got Metrovic, who've got 2ZY in Manchester. We've got RCC, who run that with Metrovic. Got Western Electric, who run this transmitter called 2WP in London. You've got General Electric. They run 5IT in Birmingham. And you've got British Thompson Houston. And they've also got a seventh representative at the smaller committee meeting. Frank Phillips, he represents the other smaller wireless manufacturers. So they are ready to discuss. Two days later, that small committee meets and they largely discuss patents at this point. If they're to be one broadcasting company, do they all share the patents? Well, Marconi's are not sure about that. Also on the agenda, the name of the broadcasting company. Now, in fact, on the printed agenda in pen, Frank Gill adds British in front of broadcasting company. This is the first time the name the British Broadcasting Company is written down. And we can probably thank Frank Gill for that. The agenda sheet also adds another talking point, interestingly. Action as to pirates. 
this is the first time the word pirate has been used with regard to broadcasting on that same piece of paper. The first to call it the British Broadcasting Company and the first to use the words pirate radio. Now, that is a piece of paper I want in my collection. The other main discussion point is finance at this meeting. The seven of them agree that the only profit possible in this is the sale of radio sets. And what's the best way to sell radio sets? It's to make the programmes unmissable. The post office, they decide, should only approve sets stamped British Broadcasting Company. In other words, ones that they are making. Now, that, of course, would not fit on radios. So the shorter initials BBC are born, just to fit on a stamp on a radio set. Meanwhile, back in music, Peter Eckersley has worked out how to fade out music. But how do you fade out music when really at this point microphones just plug in or plug out? There's no fader option. Peter Eckersley had an idea. You know, with Riddle, uh, we didn't have any elaborate studio or any wonderful gadgets and uh, things like that. What we had was, uh, when we wanted to play a gramophone record, we had a perfectly good mechanical gramophone with open doors. And you opened the doors, and you put the needle on, and it scratched, and it played little music. And then you held the microphone in front of the open doors where the sound poured out from. Sorry about the preposition at the end of the sentence, but that's how it was. And if you wanted it louder, you just moved the microphone nearer. And if you wanted it softer, you moved the microphone further away. We were able to keep one of the smoothest volumes controls that has ever been invented. Of course, today, I mean, there are sliding resistor wires and wonderful faders and this and that, but <laughs> pioneers are always no best. Back in the boardroom, the small committee meeting meet again on the next day, May 26th. It's a tough meeting, this one. Who will make the new radio stations if full coverage of the country is the ambition? Marconi's offer, of course. Others wonder if Marconi patents will be freely given so they can join in making the stations too. No, fat chance. So like The Apprentice, two teams form. You've got Marconi's dominating the South and wanting to dominate the country. You've got Metrovic and RCC uniting in the North. And to mix my metaphors, it all gets a bit, well, like a boxing match. Now, I know we framed the Eckersley versus Burroughs thing like a boxing match a couple of episodes ago, but that is also what happened here. In fact, at the time, Eckersley spoofed this as a boxing match when he retold the story on the air back in the 1920s. So this time you've got Godfrey Isaacs, the head of Marconi's. He's in the southern corner of the ring, squaring up to Archibald McKinstry, the boss of Metrovic, who wants to cover the north. Isaacs is characterised as the heavyweight holding all the patents, but McKinstry of Metrovic, he's stereotyped as the scrappy street fighter. Isaacs is full of ideas. One of them is, in fact, that radio manufacturers agree to make radios locked to the BBC so they can't receive any other signals. No one else really likes this idea. Let the listener hear what the listener hears. It becomes clear in this scrap that Metrovic only started 2ZY Manchester to put a flag in the ground to show that they meant business too, and it worked. So Frank Gill, the chairman of this small committee of the Big Six, he reluctantly takes the two-group idea to the general post office. It looks like Britain will get two broadcasting companies, a Metrovic one in the north and a Marconi one covering the south. Four days later, over in Musicland, well, in Essex, 2MT are going morseless for the first time. Their eight o'clock show kicks in, 
and it's fully embracing entertainment radio finally. They're not even pretending now it's for calibration or experimentation purposes like the old days. New radio is here to stay and it's entertaining us. It's creating a format that will be followed for years, decades, even a century, you could say. The singers keep on coming, even to that field in Essex, although sometimes when they couldn't get a singer, good old shock jock Peter Eckersley just makes them up. Here's broadcasting historian Tim Wonder. Eckersley also used to impersonate a lady singer, Nora Scott, who came up twice to sing. Lady cons that she couldn't come because she was busy in the West End. So Eckersley used to impersonate her. <laughs> and people said he was better than she was. And isn't there a, a reverse story as well where someone did actually turn up and sing and then requested fan mail? And what's, Absolutely. What's the so they had a, quite a well-known singer came. A woman came. She was a friend of um, one of the directors. And uh, we said, gaily, we'll come and have some dinner. She was quite, quite haughty. Dinner, she said, I couldn't possibly. Before I sing, can't eat before you sing. So we left her with four bananas and a bottle of port. I went and had dinner at the the local. And we came back, and she was still there. I said, well, what are you going to sing? And she said, oh, I'm going to sing some Iruski lullabies. We told her not to make them too Iruski, remembering the the audience. And uh, she sang. And she said afterwards, I believe you get a lot of postcards, don't you, after a performance? I said, oh, yes, we get a lot of postcards. Could you send them on? Oh, yes, of course we send them on. Well, there wasn't one postcard or one letter that didn't say, dear Mr. Eckersley, that was the best imitation you've ever done. Which they all found incredibly funny, but I don't think they forwarded them to the lady. The postcards got lost in the post. We didn't send them on. We'll pick up the boardroom negotiations in part two, next time on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, with fantastic original music by Will Farmer. Archive clips are in the public domain, being as old as they are, but if you disagree and own any clips, do let us know and we will grovel and humbly take them down. We're very sorry. Stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>